Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Chris, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an honour to be invited on your show, so thank you very much. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. It's an honour to meet um, somebody of your calibre, and I don't say that um, lightly. One of my philosophies in life is get out there and smash it, because uh, you only get one life, and when it's gone, it's gone. And we met through LinkedIn. Sorry, just got to pop up here um yeah we met through linkedin and i'm guessing when you send your cv to someone not that you have to do that these days but it it must be quite odd nar- narrowing <laughs> narrowing it down oh i mean that's very kind of you to say um i i think of myself as just a pretty ordinary guy and i follow your philosophy you know one, one life you know make maximum use of it and then pretty much I've been I've been very fortunate. I've been able to accomplish a lot of the things I've set out to do, but I think um, I don't didn't necessarily put it together as a as a CV to try and impress people. It was more of a case of doing the things I enjoy, and everything else kind of flowed from that. Yes, yes. No, I, I totally get it. What I'm going to do, I don't normally do the kind of interview thing, um, but it it for the benefit of our friends at home i just want to read out a rough synopsis here because it is quite as i say it's incredibly impressive um feel free to correct me after chris but so you were a royal marine you trained as an officer at sandhurst did p company you flew attack helicopters namely the apache which is just i think every little boy's dream well the, the mental ones <laughs> like, like us anyway. Um, you then went on to, to fly in the Air Force. You're a racing instructor. And now you run a company called V-Force. And I've watched your promotion videos and they are, it's like Jay, James Bond, uh, Jason Bourne shoved into a, a, <laughs> a Ford Sierra. Yeah. Lots, of, lots of people chasing them that's pretty much it that's a that's a good summary yeah uh, i think so i i set out originally to be a pilot and I, I'd, I'd be very interested to chat to you about about your flying uh, a little later on if uh, if the chance allows but i set out to be a pilot and i knew coming from a relatively humble background humble you know beginnings it was going to be a lot of work to get up to a standard where I could be accepted into the training. And then once once I was accepted, then getting through the training was potentially, you know, in my mind, there was going to be uh, quite a challenge, but I was so focused on being able to do it, I just, uh, I, I was going to give it everything I had. Um, and as a result of that, all the preparation um, that I needed to do to get accepted in the first place, that was, that was quite a substantial journey. So um, I originally uh, decided for, for sure that I was going to become a pilot at 13 and uh, I joined the air cadets I you know took that very seriously 
got fully immersed in that. Went to join the RAF at 16 with a with a scholarship, a sixth form scholarship. Uh, but I was I was unsuccessful with that, and they just they basically told me that I needed to get more life experience, you know, grow up, be a bit be a bit more impressive. Uh, and I was okay, you know, fair enough. What do I need to do to be, you know, uh, accepted? What would, what would be better in their eyes? And and just reeled off a list of things that potentially uh, I, that I could go and do that would just um, give me that chance to be to be accepted into the training. And a, a large feature of that was so I joined the Royal Marines Reserves, and and that was a, a significant tipping point in my life because up until that point I hadn't really sort of tested myself in the in a physical challenge uh realm and of course I, so i was still doing my a levels i was 17 uh, and i know you know obviously guys you know used to join at 16 and it's probably you know it's a pretty demanding thing your body hasn't necessarily fully formed uh, at that stage so all the rigors of getting thrashed around uh, uh you know would be common and, <laughs> and the bottom field everything else was uh yeah, that for me that was quite a, a step out of my comfort zone um, to be able to um, you know spend my weekends getting beasted and then I was still doing my my A levels during the week. Uh, where on a Friday night, just because so I, just to be clear, I was I was a reservist. I was I was never in the in the regular Royal Marines, but they I don't know how much you know about the RMR, but they pretty much. I don't. I, I, I should just say here for the. For our friends i make no distinction if you're a marine you're a marine and and uh i know you know marty my my producer was uh rmr and um i think he kind of made this humble uh, i'm not going to call it an apology but i was like marty you, you, you're a bootneck you're a bootneck you wear the green berry that's you know that's it well uh, well thank you for saying that but for me that's that's how i felt i pretty much you take six months or well, you know, 32 weeks of regular Royal Marine recruit training and you've got to try and spread that over a couple of years into weekends and two-week courses uh, so obviously bits go by the wayside so there's a lot less drill and you know probably um, some of the, the less critical elements don't necessarily get covered but the core bits are still there obviously you've got to be able to uh, get through all the physical tests and culminate with a commando course um, and, and clearly there's a bit of time in the field so Pretty, pretty much so every other weekend uh on a, on a friday night all my mates would be going out and they'd be down the pub and you know they're like come and join us like, well i can't because i'm voluntarily going to go down to uh to Lipston and spend the whole weekend getting thrashed and you know, parading in peter's pool at three in the morning whatever other uh shenanigans were going on but that was it was all that was really useful because once i you know managed to get through the training and get my green lid the sense of accomplishment for doing that was was incredible and that gave me the the confidence to appreciate that i could pretty much i could turn my hand to a lot of things that weren't necessarily my natural skill set so you know there were guys who uh, were a bit older a lot fitter you know some big strong looking guys um uh, falling by the wayside not getting through the training just because they didn't have that focus and commitment mm. and yeah it's very clear that if you it was an early life lesson. If you want to do something, if you put your mind to it and you commit yourself properly and work really hard, then it's very much achievable. So, you know, that in itself 
early on as, as a lesson in life that spurred me on to achieve a whole bunch of other things that uh, um, eventually got me into the cockpit so yeah i went i went to university uh, i continued with the rmr uh, so i did a little bit of officer training and a bit of other um, specialist courses and then i had my place at sandhurst so i could um, immediately go into the next intake so a couple of weeks after graduating from uni uh, straight into the September intake at Sandhurst, but at this at this point, I, I so I knew I wanted to be an Apache pilot, but there was no guarantee of doing that. So, the way it works is, as an officer, uh, you join, go to Sandhurst, spend the first six months going through the training, and then do, you decide which uh, regiment you want to go to. But they may not necessarily accept you, uh, and it it just sort of it's if there's a vacancy and you're the the right character for for the job but you know by by then i fully committed myself to doing this i worked really hard at uni uh, so again i not i wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a natural academic but i applied myself uh and you know when you're guided by um you know a vision you're motivated you've got a dream you want to go and achieve you're willing to put up with three years of graft um and and it, and it worked so yeah, I got, got my place in the Air Corps, uh, and then pretty much that was straight into pilot training. Although at that stage, I had the opportunity, as um, all other junior officers did, to go and do an attachment to the infantry. And that's where the bit about being attached to the, the paras came in. So I just figured if, I, if I've got the opportunity to spend six months uh, stretching myself, learning, uh, you know, and developing everything, I've just spent 12 months at Sandhurst covering. Then I, I figured that the powers would, would be another interesting dimension. So it gave me a chance to go and do P company, uh, gave me a chance to go and do my jumps course. Excuse me, I spent a little bit of time out in uh, South Armagh and just see what the banter between the Marines and the powers is all about and just get a I fair was feel. Say, those <laughs> powers are really rubbish, aren't they? <laughs> do you know what? It's a, I, th I think loyalty to whichever unit you first start with is, is probably the one you identify with the most and even though I only spent five years uh, ish just over as a Royal Marine reservist uh, and was doing other things I still have a strong affinity for the Marines I still identify with them and um, yeah it was it was amazing to go and spend some time with the Paris and, and they are some really impressive blokes but it is a, it is a distinctly different mindset and a different culture but one that I mean it works and you know, the good aggressive shock troops. But uh, yeah, it's uh, there's a different flavor. And I think everybody's everybody's gonna warm to whatever um, you know, one culture or another. And I think for me, I personally preferred uh, the bootneck vibe, but not you know, to say that big respect for them. An interesting thing, Chris, is I think you're the third, maybe even the fourth pilot I've had on the show. Um, and also uh, Colin McLaughlin of uh, SAS notoriety or celebrity, I should say. Um, we all share something in common. We all got failed from the RAF our first time around. Is that so? Wow. Obviously, I never went back. I joined, joined the Marines in, in, instead. Yeah, it seems a very common thing that us kind of personalities that that are actually the kind of people the forces want, 
don't get accepted through the, the RAF recruitment process the, the first time. Yeah. Um, so I kind of like to think of it that uh, Colin was SAS, didn't get accepted by the RAF, nor, nor did I. Therefore, I'm probably SAS material. <laughs> but a, a, a great lesson there for everybody is all the pilots I've spoken to, none of them were natural academics. They all came out with one or two A-levels, middle grades, and they all said they had to work at it. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's refreshing to hear, doesn't it? There's a chance for anybody. Yeah, I, I, I'd echo that. Uh, I think I did reasonably well at school because I applied myself and I'm, I guess I'm relatively bright, but I wouldn't say I'm a super intellect by any stretch. And I'm, because I, I had that, that motivation, I knew I needed to get reasonable grades in order to be accepted in the pilot train. I was willing to knuckle down. Didn't make it easy. I'm, a, I'm an action guy. I want to go out and do things. I'm going, you know, drive cars and fly planes and ride motorbikes and, you know, sitting in the classroom learning stuff didn't necessarily <laughs> uh, just fall naturally to me. But I was I was willing to do it. I think that's the difference. You can have people who are you know, naturally very intelligent, but with no clear direction in life, maybe not willing to knuckle down and uh, tap their full potential. But flip reverse for me. I think for uni, that was particularly tricky. because So you entirely, it's on you whether you turn up to lessons or not, how much you apply yourself or not, how much extra work you put in. There's, there's no significant test. You can kind of work your way through the first year without any, any you know, appreciable effort. But by the time the second and third year exams uh, you know, are on the uh, horizon, it's all down to how much effort you've put in. And I was fully willing to commit it. And I, so my, my schedule, because I did a mechanical engineering degree, it was completely <laughs> it was a stark difference compared to a lot of my, so my student buddies who would be doing you know, eight, ten hours of lectures a week. We were doing like you know nine to five back to back lessons, labs. It was a busy degree. It was hard, and then you have to try and do some some work on top of that. And then if you go and spend two weeks going to Norway doing some training with the Royal Marines Reserves, uh, you come back. You know you've got like sixty four hours of lessons to catch up on, uh, and you know the clock doesn't stop. There's still thirty two hours of lessons a week going on. Uh, that is a significant amount of effort to try and play catch up from that. Uh, and then obviously I was spending every weekend running up and down hills or doing some kind of stuff. So uh, I actually, I treated uni as, yeah, that as a full-time job almost. So, you know, the amount of discipline required to just to keep turning up to the lessons, do as well as I could, study, knuckle down. And they come away with, uh, I mean, luckily enough, I just scraped a, a 2-1, which is a good pass. Uh, but that was, again, another lesson of if you apply yourself and really work hard to your potential, you can achieve some, some good things. So, um, yeah, that was, it was very much worth it because several years later, having gone through flying training uh, and being a, being a frontline pilot, getting to live my dream, on reflection, all that effort, all that sacrifice, well worth it. Yeah. Yes. So lucky. I went through uni, I think I was 33. So 
Oh, big respect. I, you know, they were they called us like the mature students or whatever. But to be honest, I I just felt like part of the class. I think I was still young at heart. But um, I got a two one. But looking back, I, I'd recommend to anybody who goes to uni, get hooked up with your lecturer, the one who's supposed to give you supervision, and really try to understand what it is they want from you. Because I had the knowledge, I had the academic skill to get a first and this isn't sour grapes i'm i'm honestly not not bothered i i couldn't believe i was getting a degree to be honest but when i was a teenager a degree was something you did if you were posh your family were rich and they could afford to put you through uni plus you got grants and stuff back then but i would hand in these long essays and they're using all my experience from around the world and this kind of thing and of course as good as they were, it wasn't what they wanted. They wanted these learning outcomes and they wanted you to demonstrate that you could hit these markers. And I went through three years of uni oblivious to all of that. I, I just didn't get it. Um, so yeah, lesson there for everyone is, is uh, just, just plug into the system and learn what it is because it's a tick box exercise at the end of it. You've got to put the work in, but you've got to tick, you know, tick those those boxes very much so. what what subject was that i studied i did an access course in humanities so that was uh, psychology sociology biology and i think it was human science or something and my degree was youth and community work wow wow um very, it was, very interesting yeah. well it was it was good for me chris because i'm you know if you're a scholar of life that's the they're the subjects that you want to you know to familiarize yourself and if you basically know like Marx and Durkheim and and these sort of philosophers and social scientists of years gone by it's um it gives you like a good broad understanding of life as opposed to if you sort of maybe study history you know it's kind of you know, in a, uh, I'm not making sense, but it's in a, a sort of a, a groove, so to speak. Yeah, no, that, that, that does make, it does make sense. So for me, because I, I did, uh, so mechanical engineering is maths heavy. Uh, it's, it's pretty demanding, but it's, it's a, quite a separate mindset, I would say, to get through a mech eng degree or any kind of technical degree or science degree than it is in a humanity. So I, knowing that, I did maths, physics, and chemistry A-levels, and then I went on, obviously, to do uh, a couple of gap years. Well, luckily, I found my place at uni because um, I just about did well enough to uh, convince, <laughs> convince uni to hang on for my place for a couple of years. So during the, my gap years, I, I did a philosophy and a psychology module, one of each, um, from, from, from a degree in, in the local university purely because uh, I wanted to just get a an appreciation of a humanities based degree and it was hard graft i mean it obviously it's seminars it's, it's essays and it's a it is a different mindset and i would echo what you just said earlier about you kind of you, that's where you need to link in and, and understand get an appreciation from your tutor your your mentor and then work to that and that is that's pretty fundamental to success on one a, a humanities based course whereas a technical 
course a little a little different you just need to be able to nail the maths you can solve yeah. the problems or you can't um and if you can't more effort required <laughs> yeah the, the good thing about humanities and i went on to do um a year and a bit of a social work masters and again so that's your sort of philosophy a bit of philosophy psychology biology you know this again humanities um but a big part of those degrees are um understanding the oppression in life and how the structures are set up to maintain the status quo that keeps the elite elite or the sociopath sociopaths and the and the, the working man you know down downtrodden so to speak and also anti-discrimination is a massive element that has to run through those um professions because as a professional if you don't know you're being oppressive then um it's it's not a good you know it's not a good place to be if you're a, a youth worker and i don't know you think it's fine to use this language about and you know another color or something um but what i would say is it's it's like getting as far to the edge of the matrix as you can while still being in the matrix you still um and to that end, I'm quite fortunate that I went that way. Um, you know, you can study medicine or law and be the top guy in the world in your profession, but you're still very much like in the matrix. It's, it doesn't teach you to think outside the box. Yeah. Um, and I was quite fortunate, really, that if I can call them the events in New York happened 20 years ago, right bang smack um, as I started my education. And that again was gave you reference points then with which to apply this knowledge you were learning and go, ah, maybe the world isn't quite, quite, <laughs> quite the way I, I thought it was. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I just started, I literally just started Sandhurst. I was like three days into it, four days into it when um, the 9-11 you know, kicked off. Mm -hmm. So uh, interesting times. And that obviously set everybody's mindset for the remainder of that 12 months on that on that course. Um, yeah, very focused on that shape the next couple of decades and up to this point. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, pretty much all the uh, all the old school um russian or the, the generic force doctrine kind of was put on the shelf and then it was all desert ops iraq yeah. and stuff for the next few years and, and obviously that pretty much that translated into um the apache force uh, which is where i spent the bulk of my army career uh, as part of uh I wound up doing three tours of uh of afghan so zero seven zero eight zero nine um and you're yeah we adapted to it pretty well we're pretty pretty good but clearly that's uh flipped back to old anti-russian stuff again and uh that, that old school almost cold war dusting that off to, um and, and going back to that mindset of lots of russian tanks coming across the uh the german planes and yeah attacking. yes so what was it they used to say the marines key role was protecting nato's northern flank wasn't it so yeah. to stop the uh the Ruskies coming across the the Norwegian Arctic, basically through through Finland, I guess, or that sort of area. 
Um, with style and panache and a lot of nudity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and lots of women's dresses and getting drunk at weekends. <laughs> they, um, well, the Russians, they, um, you know, they occupied Afghanistan, didn't they? For, for what was it a good part of 10 years, if not, if not longer? Sorry if I'm upsetting historians. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to jump in there with masses of historical knowledge, but yeah, it was of that order. Uh, and it didn't, it didn't work out so well, just clearly backing up the fact that it's, it's hostile terrain and it's uh, it's a hostile you know, geographical terrain, yes, but it's the people, it's the warrior mindset, and uh, yeah, you don't conquer it. It's uh, it, yeah, it's a no. Time. When when you've got a, a conscript force, obviously not everyone was a conscript, but a, but a, a, a lot of the Russians were in the same in in Vietnam. You you cannot match the mindset of a warrior who's dead set on protecting his homeland and he will do anything, including give his life with, without a second thought to, yeah. to, to repel you as invaders. And he uses the lie of the land. He uses, he's imaginative with the weapons. He's got a funding source, which is generally going to be China or, 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 or Russia, you know, or, or, Russia or, or America, um, so that they're, they're getting sort of fairly sophisticated weapon systems. I mean, the Mujahideen had, was it Stinger missiles that could take down, um, yeah. take down the, uh, was it the hind helicopters that the Russians were operating? That's right. And the Russians just weren't prepared to go that far. They, they had their bases, they, they patrolled very regular sort of routes. They, for, for a lot, uh, a lot of their tactics was just bombing villages and stuff under the, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? But under the guise that the uh, Mujahideen fighters were, were taking shelter there, but these guys could just hide in a mountain pass. And every time a, a chopper came over, don't think they had drones back then, but they would just blend into the mountainside and yeah, that made them a f formidable and un unbeatable enemy. Yeah. Agreed. I do. I think one of the decisive factors is the attitude to life, though, and as as you say, willingness to uh, to die for their country. There was a there was a lot for for what we could see uh, for the times we were at in Afghan. Uh, it's that warrior mindset of being of treating life um, maybe slightly differently to how we value it in the in the West. You know, we we do not want to be uh, seeing any casualties or uh, any death amongst our own forces and, and, and you know obviously that's a, a tragedy we value life um, significantly i don't think that translated to the same degree in the afghan mindset and more than you know a lot more willing to die for their cause mm. um, and i think that is such a huge advantage uh if you're if you're trying to do operations not invade but you know, work in a in a country where the mindset of the enemy force has got that mindset. That's a huge challenge to come up against. Yes, and it was also that. I mean, if they got injured, so if they got fragged by a grenade or a, a round or a or a missile or whatever, that they they'd have to travel for days on the back of a donkey, 
just to get to the to 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 any form of aid any um you know any form of medical um and again going into a battle knowing that that if you if you get tagged that's going to be the the outcome it's um yeah it's a whole yeah i mean if we if one of our forces gets hit chances are they're going to be on a chopper in 30 minutes and within the hour they can be um correct me if i'm wrong chris but within an hour they can be back getting medical attention and within 48 hours they can be back in a you know state-of-the-art hospital in the uk yeah without doubt i mean so that was that was the case when you know we were in afghanistan you know sort of 10 and a bit further back than that years ago uh because obviously we've got the luxury of air superiority so there's there's no significant uh, surface to air threat or air to air threat that uh, means that you can just you've got the freedom of maneuver to bring uh, the medevac or casualty evacuation uh, uh, aircraft in and even if there was a, enough of a threat that you bring that chinook that was fully decked up really impressive with a kit come in and do that casualty um, extraction you just you'd, you'd send a pair of apaches to go and escort it with the ability to just Put down fire, protect it, and do what you needed to do to uh, to clear its way in, offer enough overhead protection, and then and make sure it came back to the hospital. And you're absolutely right; that could be done comfortably within the golden hour, and they'd be um, and the casualty would then be able to go to an extremely swept up uh, medical facility uh, at Camp Bastion, and really impressive. You know, all the people who work there, the equipment. Yeah, it's about as cutting edge as you could get so probably wouldn't have that luxury if we or you know, we wouldn't have that luxury if we were going to go up against uh, a more sophisticated better armed enemy that that's got some kind of um, air defense system that makes it really tricky to have that ability to fly in pick a casualty up and fly out without getting shy at the sky so yeah i wouldn't say that's broad brush anywhere we, we would deploy in the world Probably third world nations, yeah, we'd still have the luxury of having that um, casualty extraction quick time by air. Doesn't translate you know, if you yeah, Iran, yeah, Russia, any of the really sophisticated countries that we could potentially butt up against. You know, we'd have to rethink how we're going to um, plan our casualty extraction timelines. But yes, let's fingers crossed. Let's fingers crossed. We don't have to plan. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the Apache, mate. That is some bit of kit, isn't it? I mean, it even looks. It it really looks the business, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's a formidable concept. I mean, obviously, the, so the attack helicopter attack helicopter concept goes back to uh, you know sort of pre-Vietnam came into into being really with the uh, Huey getting adapted into the Cobra. Uh, to great success, um, but then the Apache was designed ground up um, concept late seventies came into being in the excuse me the uh, mid eighties in America um, as the as the Alpha model and you know analog instruments and you know still optical sights and everything based in the front and then that uh, same pretty much the same airframe but with slightly upgraded engines but with significantly upgraded um, avionics. And uh, and you know, slightly upgraded weaponry. That was the later evolution, and the and the crowning bit was having the longbow 
radar on the on the top um, and we pretty much got a slightly just a slightly different and slightly better version than the american version in the early 2000s and uh the the original plan was we were going to potentially go and uh, have one um delta model which was the command one with a with the radar on top and the ability to have um the battlefield awareness of what was going on and then have three or you know ratios of one to three um of the low less sophisticated but the the weapon carrying missile cows uh if you like of of the alpha model that would that would be coordinated by um the delta model would tell them which targets to go and prosecute and they'd be the ones that would just carry all the weaponry and, and engage but actually as as it came to pass once you know people had made all the trials made the decisions things evolved they decided that it was going to be better to go for 67 i think i'm correct in saying um all of the delta model the, the more sophisticated longbow radar uh, equipped apaches mm. so by the time they came into service about 2004 with with the army air corps um the first the first bunch of guys were coming through flying training um for on the apache conversion when i was at the tail end of my pilot's course so i timed it just great more by you know luck than judgment but uh i at that point you weren't able to go straight from uh, from pilot training onto the apache you had to go and prove yourself on another aircraft beforehand and then you know once you had that little bit more experience you could then come across um so yeah it's uh it was you know a big enough challenge to get through flying training in the first place so uh yeah firstly to get there and to be accepted on the pilot's course and then the pilot's course itself 18 months long and you start with with ground school you know i've, I've done um, a fair bit of sort of technical things in in my mechanical engineering degree so i found the ground school relatively straightforward um, but again still applied myself work hard no dramas fixed wing so you pretty much do the equivalent of uh, a private pilot's license plus a bit more um, and all on a basic fixed wing so single prop two-seater you learn the basics of uh, handling the aircraft a bit of instrument flying there's only one night night flying trip and a bit of nav so really straightforward stuff well before you get onto a helicopter because you know it's obviously it's cheaper if somebody's having a bit of a stinker getting through that uh then you know unfortunately it, it's savage it's brutal you get chopped that's it <laughs> you're out so yeah. working years of your life going on a, a monday morning with all your course mates um having done equally well or there or thereabouts with everybody else on all the uh, all the trips up to that point and then you could just you could fail a trip that monday morning and you'd be you know go for a reset on the on the tuesday that doesn't work out by friday you're off the course never to yeah. fly again by, by monday you you're with ryanair yeah <laughs> uh chris can so, we just um, yeah I, I, i'd be interested to put this little chat bit out as a clip because the apache is going to fascinate so many people can we just stick on the technical aspect of the apache for the time being yeah um and also your your ex experience with it um i mean what what on on the so not the um 
not the surveillance craft, but the actual attack one, what kind of, um, I'm going to say guns, not sure if I'm allowed to say guns, is that not technical enough? But No, that's fine. Yeah, what, yeah, what, what, what machine guns does that have on it? So, yeah, absolutely. Guns are correct to him. And you know, all Apache pilots like, think of themselves as gun pilots. It is the aircraft is pretty much built as uh, you know, an armoured flying fortress, which is gunship, got, isn't it? That's, gunship. That's absolutely it. It's got a 30 mil cannon, uh, which uh, that can that can obviously manoeuvre um, through quite quite an arc. So pretty much you can almost go vertically down and you can sweep it through almost 180 degrees. So almost 90 degrees off to the left through to 90 degrees to the right. And you can you can basically operate that by either linking it to the camera. Um, so you see it in the, in the TV screen in the, you know, in the cockpit. Uh, and that's a really accurate and that's probably the, the best way of operating. That's the equivalent of using uh, a rifle looking down the site for a simple analogy. Mm -hmm. But you can also link it to the whichever crew members um, crash on it and their helmet mounted display. So you've got a monocle in front of the, the right eye of both crew members and you've got like a little green crosshair and you can wherever you move your helmet, whatever you look at, you can slave the cannon, slave the gun, so it moves to wherever you're looking at. Um, and that is the equivalent of you know, firing from the hip. So it can be done, it's for closing you know, very quickly, short range um, bursts for suppression, do but you, not necessarily accurate. Do you, do you have to compensate with the aerodynamics when that thing goes off? Does it, you know, is it trying to push the, the chopper back? No, uh, not in the same way that an A-10 would so obviously you know that's got such a formidable weapon that unless you're in a mega steep dive at full throttle you know even then you're still you've got to compensate for the fact that if you put in a massive burst uh, you know then you're going to be slowing the aircraft down. not doesn't affect it quite anywhere near as, as much as that but what you do have to compensate for is if you're doing what i said with the latter firing from using the information in your in your helmet mounted display to look at the target that is on on whoever whoever's doing that, um, looking at the target and operating the trigger. It's on you to compensate for where those rounds are going, take into account the fact that you're moving, the target might be moving, um, wind, uh, and and all the other elements of aerodynamics. Whereas if we go with the preferred method, which is far more accurate of using um, the crosshairs on your screen, the weapons processor takes care of all those calculations for you. So. All you need to do is just you know, use your cursor to line up the crosshairs uh, and, and point your camera exactly where you want it. And then the weapons processor will make all the ballistic corrections. You don't have to think about aiming off or any of that kind of stuff. So it takes into account your relative speed, you know, the wind, velocity, the, and the movement of the target. Uh, and when there's a lot going on in the cockpit, you want to rely on that because yeah, you've got so many other things happening, listening to multiple radios and um, you've got split second decisions to make. You don't really want to have to be uh, you know, trying to offset for something that you, you could wind up putting rounds 100 metres away. Then you've got to, all the faff of trying to adjust on. You haven't, you haven't got time for that. Split second decisions. You want the rounds to be bang on target straight away. How, how worried are you about a blue on blue? Oh, right. Well, clearly that is it. 
everybody's uh, everybody at that point, you know, that, um, that period of, of AH force time in Afghanistan, that was a massive um, thing that was on everybody's mind because it's so tricky to identify uh, one tree line from another when you're looking at a screen and you're flying around in circles um, and you're trying to make split second decisions. So the implications of, of a, you know, a trigger pull against what you thought was uh, an enemy position but turned out to be friendly is you just call a load of your own blokes. Mm. And that is, you know, that weighs on your mind. That is big, big pressure. But you get around that by your crew of two. You've got good familiarity with the um, with the area, uh, and you double. You just got to double check anything. And if there's any doubt, you're not going to fire necessary you know, directly into a tree line, which could or or may not be where friendlies or enemy are. So you, you're putting a witness burst in an open field next to it, and and you'll say right from from that witness burst, get the, the JTAC or whoever you're able to speak to on the ground and say, right, can you just adjust me on from that? Let's be absolutely certain. I've just fired into a field, which I think is hundred meters to your east. Can you confirm? And yeah, if, if the answer is yes, definitely. Well, then we can just adjust on from that. So there are ways of getting around it. But of course, the other thing is, you know, where you'd be plugging in um, relatively accurate grids and elevations into the, into the weapons processor. And then that would automatically bring your camera onto the exact grid that you've been given. But even then, if somebody's uh, having a bit of a stinker on the ground and they transpose a number and they don't necessarily give you the correct grid, or you have a, a finger problem in the cockpit and you accidentally put the, uh, the grids in the wrong way around, there's all that read back. So you double check in between the JTAC on the ground and yourself in the cockpit, and there's two of you in the cockpit, so you're both cross-checking. There's a number of checks that try and sweep up anything where there's potential for human error to have caused a blue on blue. And you, and every time uh, you do a weapons engagement, it's all recorded. And then when you come back from that sortie, it's all thoroughly debriefed. Mm. And um, everybody gets the lessons from that. So firstly, it's to ensure that what you did is legal and use the correct rules of engagement, the correct weapon system, it comply with the law of armed conflict. And, uh, but also, you get all the other guys, as many who are available from the squadron, to learn from just purely what the, uh, the engagement was, how you've done it, how you could do it better next time, um, what would be a better approach angle, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and then any time any other platform had a blue on blue, accidentally dropped a, a a bomb on a friendly position, whatever it may be, we'd all try and learn the lessons from that in the in the same way that any time there's a, a, a crash, um, an aircraft from whatever fleet, maybe nothing related at all to uh, an Apache, but whenever somebody, uh, you know, whenever there's been a big crash, you try and get all the benefits, all the knowledge, all the safety elements from that so that it doesn't happen or you minimize um, the chances of that happen again across the entire um, did, did you have many choppers crash in in theater no not many at all uh, not not apaches uh, so a few a few tunics had had a um yeah you know, a couple of rough landings we say uh from you know from enemy action um because obviously when you're when you're low and slow coming into and, and out of uh, a landing site 
you're pretty vulnerable to rocket propelled grenade attacks or uh, you know even a burst from uh, from machine guns actually you know a couple of lucky hits and you've potentially um, that's enough to cause damage that would cause the aircraft to, to crash but nothing thankfully um, catastrophic and guys it was almost like more of a crash landing than a full crash guys had got away with it um, Apache wise literally there was one crash and I was lifting out of uh, a one of the Ford operating bases towards the north of the Helmand area and the guys took off in strong wind uh, against the wind because there were a whole bunch of other aircraft for an op that were in front of them which which prevented them from doing the taking off into wind which you needed at that point uh, because you know we're so limited for power in the apache at that at that time when you're full of fuel full of weapons we didn't have enough power to come to a, a free air hover you'd have to fly you know, treat it like a slow fixed wing because you need that extra airflow to come across uh, the disc but these these guys were kind of hemmed in on the landing site so they had to they had to do a, a crosswind departure which was pretty tricky and as, as they were kind of just trying to get the speed up um, as they were crossing the threshold from you know the fence separating the inner and the outside of the fob massive dust storm massive dust cloud um, kicked up because it was obviously you know, nice and dust suppressed inside the compound as soon as they went out the other side of the fence complete brownout and it came in like that so for one second they were just struggling struggling the way to to get going but could see perfectly where they were heading and the next second complete brownout lost references and then and crashed but thankfully both guys got out no 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 problem at all uh, and then the the knock-on effect from that was right the entire force needs a little bit more training just to make sure that we can if ever we're forced into that situation which isn't the optimum way of taking off into wind how do we best get around that and it, it was about using the symbology and using some of the, um, the holds that the, the aircraft has which is like a less sophisticated autopilot um, and then there was some simulator training as part of the you know the, the subsequent tours just to make sure nobody nobody had that happen again and it didn't you know this is aviation is really good at as you will have experienced for yourself, mm. finding the lessons, uh, spreading them out uh, to everyone needs to know, having a culture of safety so you can you can become better, safer, um, and learn the lessons across the board. Um, yeah. And how susceptible are you to getting shot down by small arms fire? Uh, so. We pretty much were operating uh, above the, the threat band for small arms for the vast majority of the time because the weather was good enough and because the, the air threat allowed, there was no significant air threat whatsoever. So obviously no enemy aircraft uh, in, in Afghan to prevent us from maneuvering wherever we wanted. So for, sense, for a couple of reasons, it made perfect, perfect sense to be up at 2,000 feet above the ground. Mm. Uh, comms were brilliant. So we had the ability to be, you know, pretty much perfect clear comms back to headquarters, back to the ops room, anywhere we were operating within Helmand. Uh, we and and to talk to the JTACs well in advance of where we needed to go, and also your visibility is really good. You can see, uh, you know, way ahead. You know, it makes 
sensors and makes your your weaponeering a lot easier being stacked up at height. So there are there are many benefits, but of course you're sat above where the where the small arms fire. So you know, guys firing up with AK-47s very unlikely to cause any any significant damage mm. um, because also it being a, a built from the ground up armored helicopter with you know being survivable as part of its its description. Are the are the rotor blades? For want of a better word, bulletproof. No, uh, and, a, and a couple of guys had had um, a few holes put through, uh, put through their blades, and uh, yeah, but not by small arms. So this would be more Dushka or big, bigger machine guns. Um, but uh, if that one guy grabbed grab the bullet and uh, and just put it on his on his uh, neck chain, I just wore that for the rest of the, the tours that he did. Uh, but you know, it's a it's a really cleverly designed, tough bit of kit. The uh, the Apache design would just it would it would take well, you know, considerably more than a couple of rounds through the the rotor blades to make it fall out of the sky. There was a footage of an American one that had been that had one of its engines shot by a surface to air missile, uh, and it still managed to fly back to base safely. Uh, and it looked like a proper write off, but managed to land safely, and the crew survived. So yeah, it was fine, um, but the the times we dropped below the threat band or you know drop below 2000 feet and we're low level we used to do that on the earlier tours we'd sneak in um for yeah a, a run in low level if we had let's say we're going to do a deliberate ops with two chinooks full of guys um about to go and do an assault on an area well to retain the element of surprise as long as possible keeping low level fine you know as fast and as, as low as we could and then right at the last minute it, with the apaches leading they pop up and then the chinooks would come in and land on with the apaches time and judge just right would be high enough up that they'd be able to oversee the area and put down fires but not pop up so early that they've just given the game away yeah. um and we used to do that on the earlier tours and then it just became a little bit too a little it was more risk than uh, than was tolerable. So like, even though it's an armored helicopter, yes, they were like, well, actually, you're better off just being at height and staying out of that threat band. Um, and yes, I know you're going to lose the element of surprise slightly, but it doesn't really matter. The fact that you're in the overhead and the Taliban can see an Apache, they're scared already and they're pretty much probably going to go to ground. So where you've lost that slight element of surprise, you've you've actually gained safety of helicopter and a deterrent effect. So let's just keep it at that. And that, and that made sense. Not as fun flying at 2,000 feet as, you know, being at treetop height, but, you know, hey, so you're, doing, you're there to a job, not just have a, not just have a laugh. So. What was it like then the first time you had to put fire down? Um, was it like all the training that you've done over the years is, is now coming to fruition? Yeah, absolutely. The training is incredibly thorough. The so the Apache course is split into two, and the first course is about seven months learning how to fly the aircraft. The second part is a, again about six or seven months. is all about operating it. So lots of weaponeering, and there's even more time in the simulator than there is in in the aircraft on that on that phase because you know the the. The weapon system is not just the cannon. You've got missiles, you've got rockets, and you've got to coordinate that with, you're not just firing, sat and hover. There's various different 
uh, ways you can do running fire and fire and you know from coming off the wagon wheel and tipping in and all the various different iterations of low level and high level working with a partner work with a wingman uh, so you you've had significant amounts of training just to be the most you know the newest apache pilot there and then there's pre-deployment training uh, which we used to do out in america uh, in arizona just to get guys uh, even more up to speed rather than doing more generic stuff it was you know so representative of, of the afghan deserts being out in in the states mm -hmm. and lots of wide open space uh, so having done loads of time um you know, operating weapons in the in the simulator, all the button presses and the complexity of knowing what to do in what sequence. Um, you then you did live firing in America, and then even when you got into theatre, you still you did a little bit of uh, live firing on the range before you even got out and flew your first mission. And then you'd be paired off with somebody who was an experienced operator. So as the most junior guy, you'd be flying um, probably pilot to start with with a commander who'd done previous tours, or if not, was an experienced guy. So in the, in the very first tours, um, it would be guys with thousands of flying hours would be commanding the aircraft. So uh, you were never sort of really, it was never like Spitfire pilots in the Second World War, handful of hours, crack on. It was so thorough that, you know, you were pretty au fait with, with what button presses to make at what time. And then when you actually come to do that, uh, you know the first engagement for real it it doesn't seem like a massive step away from what you've been doing already and you're so focused on trying to get the correct things done in the correct order because time is short these things happen in the blink of an eye you're you're busy enough that you're all consumed so as the pilot you've got to maneuver the aircraft in your position to fire as the as the co-pilot gunner who's actually the aircraft commander and the weapon system um, operator, if you like, you're so engrossed in trying to achieve the uh, the weapons release within the time frame that you've got, which is a matter of seconds, that you haven't got time really to dwell on on what you're doing. And it probably takes quite a while; probably takes a few weeks uh, to to actually let it sink in what you're doing. But of course, you know, when when you first turn up in theatre you're getting a period of, of handover. So the squadron that's, uh, that's been there for a while still has the reins for a couple of weeks and you kind of just gradually blend in and get a feel. And, and there was a point where you know, you, you'd either fly with one of the more experienced guys from uh, the tour that's, that's just about to finish um, or you, you'd be a wingman for the experienced guy. So if an engagement was to happen, just let them crack on. You'd probably just follow in and watch and learn for the first couple of weeks while you did that handover phase. Uh, so it was never as, as sudden as perhaps you might think. It was all thorough and blended in. Uh, and the engagements were relatively simple compared to trying to be in the simulator in a Cold War environment, trying to whack multiple uh, Russian tanks as, as you were getting lit up by various ground threats. This was actually, it was a bit more simple, but at the same time, it was a bit more dynamic because as I say, we didn't have the luxury of just being sat in a hover, didn't have the power to do that. So you're flying around in a circle and you've got to get used to uh, looking at a TV screen or looking out the window and getting an appreciation of what it's like uh, flying sideways on uh, or, look at, or looking sideways to the target 
and have the ability to then roll straight in off the wheel into an ability to, to attack. So you could fire off access with the gun, but it would require a slight bit of maneuvering. But if you're going to put rockets or missiles in, you need to be pointing at the target pretty much. Um, so plus whatever's happening on the target area, it's if we're talking about a couple of you know a couple of guys, a couple of Taliban guys who are running around from one piece of cover to another, might pop out, uh, change fire positions, move somewhere else. It, it, the time available for making those engagements is so small uh, that you know you, you either you snap in and it works, or you've got to reset and be patient and just accept. So quite a lot of times, you just weren't quite in the optimum position to be able to make an engagement. Uh, but of course, with you know with time and practice, you get very slick at it. Mm. Um, yeah, interesting times, but you know, really satisfying. Did you did you and your fellow air crew? Was it a common discussion? What are we going to do if we if we get shot down in? I'm going to say in enemy territory, but obviously outside of the base is all enemy territory. But was was that a discussion that you had? Yeah, uh, a lot. Um, really interesting. The training was was excellent for that. So uh, again, in, in America, in uh, in Arizona, we'd go into uh, a bit of um, crashed aircraft uh, survival uh, or post-crash um, actions on in the range. So as a pair, you know, it would assume that you, if you manage to survive the crash uh, and you're there as, as a pair, you'd operate your survival radio. If you're a singleton aircraft, you need to get in air support as soon as possible to come pick you up where, where able. Uh, and then you either you know, we're in a scenario where you're immediately surrounded under fire, so we just pepper pop back with our own uh, weapons. We'd have uh, a, yeah, a short-barreled uh, assault rifle and a pistol, and so you're going to work your way back to some kind of cover, and then hopefully have an emergency rendezvous. You could bring in either another Apache, in which case that's where that'll land on. You're going to hook on and just carabiner on the outside, so you'd be sat next to the, uh, the cockpit, one guy either side. Um, or there would be uh, another dedicated platform, Chinook or whatever it may be, uh, to uh, support helicopter come and pick you up. But of course, yeah, there may be a period of time where you're on the ground, one of you or both of you is injured. You might not have the luxury of, uh, you know, you might be rolled over and stuck in the, in the frame. Uh, so you might not be able to get out because it's inverted in the crash and you're, you know, dangling. Uh, in which case, yeah, of course, not another nice position to be in, and we're pretty much of a mind of if we do get caught, yeah, we're going to have a you know torturous time and then a slow, painful death, and it's going to be pretty pretty grim. So, uh, I don't think getting shot down was was a massive bother for for that many guys because yeah, it's an armored helicopter. We're flying at height, and it and it was a low level of sophistication, and all the surface to air missiles that the guys had, we had. Um, defences on the helicopter to counter that, but crashing because of an air-to-air, -air, so at night or if the weather was bad or if there was a mechanical issue, so like one, for example, one Apache uh, it took off and had a tail rotor failure shortly after takeoff. Now, these things happen, human error or mechanical wear and tear. Um, in this case, not entirely sure how it, how it came about, but there was uh, a tail rotor failure which if that happens in a helicopter, this is a bad thing because you cannot fly that helicopter any longer because it'll just spin around mm. and 
you hit in the deck. So the guys flew it yeah, extremely well, did all the correct actions, and managed to uh, land it on quite close to the base, and were you know immediately given um, given ground support, and you know they survived themselves un unhurt and managed to right the aircraft. I'll keep it as out of damage as possible or undamaged as possible. So, but if that had happened well into the green zone, well away from uh, from any kind of immediate support, um, as a singleton, yeah, if you'd have survived the crash, uh, then pretty much we'd have been, you know, you'd been surrounded and it would have been grim consequences. So you, you know, would pretty much resign ourselves to the fact that we're just gonna you do whatever you can with your personal weapons and uh, take as, as many guys out as you can before you the inevitable happened. So yeah, we we you, you would talk about it, but you hope it would never happened to you. So. Yeah. And what weapons did you have in the cockpit? What personal weapons? Yeah, so it was an SA-80 with a short barrel that would that would just tuck into the uh, seat okay. next to you. A shorter barrel. <laughs> shorter barrel, yeah. <laughs> short, uh, it's short enough anyway, folks. <laughs> that's, that's right. So uh, just because there wasn't enough space to have the full-length barrel um, SA-80 in the cockpit. Uh, and that worked. That worked fine. So you tuck that in next to you, and you'd have a pistol, as much ammo as, as you want to, as you want to take with you. So a good, a good few hundred rounds. You'd have a grab bag uh, with a few more mags in it, um, and then a survival bag, go bag. You know, if you're able to, if you, so if you happen to land somewhere benign and there wasn't any help made, available immediately, at least with your go bag, you'd have potentially some food, um, some water, some shelter in there, and um, you could take a, a good book. <laughs> yeah well hopefully it wouldn't be up that long but yeah fair enough you always, always hey, worth having some wisdom these days you could take a bloody device <laughs> what, yeah take what, what the Kindle in HD, HD movies or something well yeah um probably probably on the run you know you wouldn't necessarily be thinking about that's that's fair that's fair <laughs> so not yeah you're not significantly well equipped it's not like you got uh, a mini me you can just grab out the side pod and, and go and run with so it's bare minimum but of course a lot of the time you operate as a wing with a wingman so as a, as a two ship so if ever one guy was shot down the other could just swoop in land on next to you and you clip on and then escape you know sat sat clipped on the side of the apache so that brings me on to the next thing i wanted to ask you i'm just writing down some time codes here so um is my old oppo I'm, I'm only going to refer to him as colin because i don't know if he wants his name all over the internet um but when i served with him in the northern ireland conflict he was a corporal i gather that he went on to become i think rsm or at least csm but he was the chap that hooked himself up i believe it's to an apache or it might have been one of the americans uh american choppers and he went back into the conflict zone to basically grab hold of a of a dead marine that had been obviously shot in a um it wasn't even a contact i think they they attacked a compound and in the process this marine was shot dead when they got back to base or when they re reorged re they realized someone was missing Cole volunteered to clip himself onto the side of the helicopter, obviously because there's no no room in the in the co cockpit or the cabin or doesn't even have a cabin. 
um, and flew back and was able to recover this chap's body. It, it, were you there at the time? I wasn't, I wasn't there for that. I was just a little bit before the first tour that I did, but obviously, you know, I've spoken to the guys, heard, heard the stories and pretty impressive stuff because, so that is fundamentally, that is an emergency extraction technique for when guys are, you know, are literally about to get overrun by the Taliban. You're going to land on next to them and they're going to clip on. And this is not, a, not the ideal way to be flying around. But that is an extraction method, certainly not an infiltration method. But in this in this case, uh, that was probably the only the only option to go in and, and rescue the poor guy. Uh, and so, big respect. I can't have been a comfortable ride in for uh, for the RSM for Cole. Did he say? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> definitely uh, a, a good dip for the grandkids, I guess. But um, yeah, that's that would have been probably a a pretty uncomfortable and you know fairly emotional ride in and then especially you having to pick up the you know the corpse of a, of a poor poor lad who'd mm. been killed uh and then load them onto the side um and then extract yeah it'd been emotional times but um it just it proved that that is an option not necessarily a favorable one um but then at any point going forward if ever the situation dictated then at least we knew that that had been done and it could be done again in extremis but never as a as a first choice um yeah i it wouldn't surprise me if they probably went against hq to to conduct it because it's not you know to risk million, millions of pounds worth of chopper and, and three human lives probably four because i'm guessing there was a a second marine involved um yeah that's some call to make isn't it it is and i think the earlier days uh and this was this was very early days of uh of op herrick it was um noticeably more chilled out and noticeably less uh restricted in terms of what you're allowed to go and do and you know and i don't necessarily a risk, I suppose. Whereas it didn't take too long, a couple of tours into it, there was a noticeable shift change in how much uh, risk or lack of risk appetite there was. And everything was properly risk managed. Every every mission that you went on, uh, you'd have a conditions check to decide whether or not it was worth risking you know, that amount of equipment, that number of lives, whether the benefit was, uh, was, was worth you know, losing a, a few forty million pound helicopters and and some dudes on the way, mm. uh, and that I think the scrutiny was cranked up as the tours went along, and I guess it was probably a combination of maybe not fully mention it to the headquarters that would be making the decision. I don't know. Uh, coupled with the fact that it was probably a little bit more of a, uh, a relaxed culture for risk appetite at that time, but that very quickly. Up. Um, it's exactly the sort of action that British forces would carry out without a second thought for their own safety, but exactly the same sort of ac action that the higher echelons would be like, nope, um, kind of that's that's probably British military <laughs> history going back to the to the first world first world war there. Yeah, that's my gosh, just amazing. Yeah.
So I'm just let's just be a bit random here now because I think you've told your story very very well, Chris. It's it's just it's fascinating, you know. It's it. I hope I'm I'm sure our friends are finding it as fascinating as I am. Well, thank you very much. Wow, it's and you're very humble. This is the other thing about all the pilots that I've I've chatted with are just so humble and I haven't met like you know what you'd expect an RAF hooray Henry doesn't seem to be there in the mix at all very very rare to find characters like that uh, I think yeah the stereotypes always uh interesting and the stereotypes kind of probably exist for a reason because there are one or two guys who, who match up to that but in the main I guess what you'll find is everybody is super motivated professional it's it's been something that they've worked really hard for years to achieve and it's been an ambition for years and years uh just to become a, a pilot and be as good as and um, professional as they can but occasionally you get guys who are you know just you describe as a natural pilot so they're really you know they've got oodles of capacity they never maxed out they just all the information that is chucked at you during training which is significant there's a vast array of information you've got to absorb and be able to cope with and reproduce. And for some guys, you know, one or, one or two, it just is no big deal at all. And they don't have to put any significant extra effort in. That's a rarity. Everybody really has got to put in a lot of graft. Uh, and as a result, you know, you don't, you don't just cut around taking it, taking it for granted. You're like, this is, this is hard work. This is my profession and I'm, I'm willing to, do the best I can at this. Mm. Uh, I think the other the other thing about it is, you know, we're obviously we're, we're you kind of get uh, get used to an environment, and you don't say take it for granted, but it becomes the norm when you've done you know thousands of hours or you know many hundreds of hours flying an aircraft in a particular combat operation or theatre of operation. That becomes you become so used to it it's it's the norm so to what might appear to somebody who's not had that experience for themselves to be quite you know exciting and uh, pretty awesome well it, it is those things but it almost is it's like you're used to it it's it's a daily thing and you you've spent so much time sat in a cockpit flying at 2000 feet over the deserts of afghan looking at tv screens talking on the radio you're just completely um, that's an environment you're so used to. Uh, whereas, yeah, you know, I can remember being on a on a mission um, where it's probably on my second tour. Actually, no, on my third tour of Afghan, um, we were on very high readiness, and on occasion uh, there would be the AC-130, so the Herc, American Hercules, that just had pretty much every piece of weaponry that you can possibly imagine strapped to it. That would that would be the, the aircraft of choice for special force operations uh, that would go in and do the big high profile grabs of you know big hitter um, enemy guys, and they like to have that overhead because of what it enabled them to do for firepower. If it all turned ugly, they had more than a wealth of airborne gunnery that they could get amongst, and mm -hmm. every now and again that would be unavailable because it was tasked elsewhere or it was unserviceable. So the, the next best thing was, was getting a pair of Apaches. 
obviously very capable bit of kit, but the limitation of an Apache is its range and endurance. Whereas a, obviously a Herc, you can fly for hours and hours and be miles away from the operating base and bring it in from elsewhere. Whereas the Apaches were pretty much within a couple of hours flight of, um, of the base to have enough loiter time to make it worthwhile. Anyway, for whatever reason, one night, this Herc not available. So the, the, the best thing to do, it was a quick op as a lot of SF ops are. So we'll take the very high readiness pair uh, and it was a night mission to go within about an hour's flight of, uh, of Bastion and there was going to be a big stack of aircraft so we had uavs up above the target area so drones looking down at the target area um some armored some not and then above that you had some um, some jets with bombs ready to go again with sensors uh, and then the the apaches at a couple of thousand feet uh, for that close-in fire support and you know that airborne command and control and then with the ability to below that couple of chinooks full of guys um, who are going to land on quite close to the target and do a walk-in from about, you know, maybe 100 metres away. And then in addition to that, a couple of Sea Kings with, uh, with snipers, with SF snipers on board. And uh, you've got all this massive package going on. It's night. It's, uh, it's an SF op. It's fast. It's high profile. You rock up. You know, it's midnight. And you get established in the stack. You've got eyes on. There's all the radio chatter going on. Then a couple of minutes later... Chinooks come in, you watch it with your camera. So they land on just short of the target. All the guys get out. You can see the uh, ultraviolet or the um, IR strobes go in. You watch all these, all the guys uh, stack up and then leg it towards the compound. And then they're in the compound and they're, they're doing their thing. And we'll spend the rest of the time just flying around, just listening for sit reps. Is anything kicking off? Looking into you know, close in and slightly further away if there's anybody likely to come out of the, the tree lines and, and start doing a counter-attack against these guys. But of course, you know, very you know, nothing happened. No movement. It was completely pitch black. No one, no one kicking about. Actually, after two hours of flying around the circles, after that initial wave had come in, I'll be honest with you, quite boring. <laughs> mm. But yeah, you, can't, you can't really explain to somebody who's not really been in that environment that uh, Actually, that sounds really cool. Well, by the time you've done it a bunch of times, actually, it's one of the most dull sorties I've ever done. <laughs> I remember hey, thinking that. Yeah. Is it as boring as putting in a 12 hour ambush? <laughs> well, similar. It's not quite as boring as that, but it's the same mindset. It's like you think of all the things you've got to do to get into position in the first place. You probably don't have enough time to write your orders, deliver the orders, shake out. You know, you probably had this, you know, you're on your toes just to make it to get in position on time. So all that rush to get there, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you're right. Twelve hours of sat around trying to stay awake. Exact, exactly the same sort of situation here. Uh, but trying to explain that to somebody who's uh, who's not sort of experienced that, it's like, wow, actually, that sounds amazing. What a cool job! It is awesome, but it's not quite as as cool as you think it is sometimes um but uh but actually you know i, I don't i don't want to play down how much effort it is to get to that point in the first place for one and secondly i think the all the different roles that we had in uh, in afghan days um in our peric days the the one that was most uh, the most rewarding by far was very high readiness 
going to support troops in contact uh, where, you know, this was guys going out on patrol and just having a stinker, getting pinned down, maybe losing uh, a couple of guys. Um, so there'd be casualties and, you know, they'd be outnumbered, outmaneuvered by a whole bunch of aggressive Taliban. And then you can tip up very quickly by being good at what you're doing, having the ability to get there quickly and very quickly tip the balance in their favour. Now, now that was, it was, it was exciting. It was dynamic. You, you know, there was, because there was no planning. It's just completely reactive. You've got to be on your A game. Your concentration level is really high because you haven't had time to soak up imagery, uh, do lots of, you know, two days worth of planning cycle, um, send UAVs up to saturate the ground. You, from, you know, general flying knowledge, from you may have flown over there quite a few times, but you may never have been to that particular uh, location. So you've got to rock up and you've got a JTAC who's, uh, you know, talking, talking up to you, but also trying to find out what's going on with the, uh, with the commander on the ground and, and be that link between the two of you. So you're trying to extract as much situational awareness from talking to the JTAC and couple with maybe a little bit of your own knowledge, if you have any, but if not, everything is done looking through um, your cameras at your TV screen, trying to ascertain where the friendlies are and where the enemy are and comes back to that blue on blue thing you've got to do everything you can to avoid uh, blue on blues or civilian collateral damage and make sure you can target only the enemy and then you're only going to get a fleeting glimpse of whether they're just running between cover or, or firing you know just coming out from the side of a building putting down a couple of rounds legging it somewhere else using trenches tree lines whatever else uh you know the workload it just it is it's like that. You you you're working so hard, um, but when you get it right, you know you've saved saved lives uh, from guys who are getting pinned down. You've got the ability to bring in the medevac um, chinook because you can see what's going on with uh, with the rest of uh, the ground situation. You're able to put down suppressive fire to to minimise the threat to that helicopter, uh, and then you can get that casualty away, and you can hopefully allow the guys to regroup and either outmaneuver the Taliban or just withdraw to some kind of cover, reconstitute, and then go again. So without a shadow of a doubt, that was the most satisfying and uh, but the hardest role to, just, to fulfil. Just sounds like the stuff of uh, films, doesn't it? <laughs> well, not to you, but to, to us, uh, the un uninitiated, blimey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, um, well, that was a privilege, it really was. And, you know the the responsibility though if you get if you if you make a wrong call you might don't if you're not quite on your a game and you just you just don't take advantage of that couple of seconds where you could uh you know you could put down some accurate fire then your guys are still vulnerable and just because you you weren't quite as slick as you needed to be um then your guys are still potentially gonna uh catch it up so yeah, it was um, enormous privilege, but also it was it's extremely hard work at times, but very satisfying when you got it right. So. I bet, I bet. Well, we're going to come on, Chris, and talk about your your racing and 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 your company. Um, but we we're going to talk about fly, flying in general, weren't we? Yeah. So you've obviously I've seen that you went to America and got your FAA license. Yes. Yeah. I'm a, 
plastic pilot isn't the right word, but I was quite chuffed that if you if you pass your private pilot's license in America, you you get it for life. So I've got my little license over there somewhere with my, I think it's got my fo photo on, I can't remember. And it's a lot of stuff I do, Chris, is a bit like what we said earlier. I do it because I don't want to die and say that I, I hadn't done it. And when I was a, a little lad and I saw airplanes flying over, I would just think, wow, it would be great to fly one of those one day. I don't know if everybody thinks that, but I certainly did. And I, this is how I always sell myself on my, on my adventures is it comes from, it might be watching a film or, or I mean, I watched Point Break, the original Point Break when it came out, gosh, 20, 25 years ago or whenever it was. I mean, who, who couldn't watch that film and not want to go skydiving? Yeah. I mean, it was just, I've, I've got to do that. So I just put them on what, what I call a back burner in my mind. And then it, it's like that thing, set your goals, dream big, and then the universe gives it all to you. It certainly you know, does, yeah. You know, as long as you're prepared to, to recognise the opportunity and go, yep, yeah, now's my time, Let, let's go for it. And I've done the same for whatever it might be, you know, running the London Marathon, running the length of the country, backpacking through every single country in the Americas. I mean, that comes off the back of reading adventure books when I was a kid, reading about people catching piranhas in the Amazon. So when I actually finally caught a piranha in the Amazon, which to some people might just be catching a fish, no, to me, it's just the most, can't think of the word the 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 fullest experience i could ever have it just means so much to me that that yeah. i read about this when i was maybe 12 years old and now i'm i'm i'm, I'm living it i'm i'm you know a little dream like that's come come through and okay. come through rather I mean, isn't it isn't it amazing to do that to when you you know i remember being sat in in a classroom trying to knuckle down and listen to what the teacher was saying and just just dreaming daydreaming of being flying up in the clouds and wising around uh but when years later when it actually happens it's such an accomplishment such a feeling of accomplishment it's like i yeah i've put years and years about of my life working towards that that point when it actually happens it's just incredible um yeah so I, I understand, I appreciate where you're coming from. But I imagine I with the same with flying, you know, when you went and did your, your license there, was it what you felt at the time? Was that, was, was that feeling worth all that, the years of, uh, you know, of dreaming oh, about it? Oh, gosh, it? it was, I can't actually remember what the tipping point was that made me go into a shop, buy a copy of Aircraft Weekly or Pilots Weekly or whatever, whatever it was called, and go down the back, the adverts in, in, in the back of the magazine and find a flying school. And, but I, I think I was at university at the time. It's quite funny, actually. We came back from our first year of uni and we were sat in the lecture room and there was, I don't know, 30, 35 in our class. And the lecturer came in, hi folks, welcome back for you know the next semester. I think they started calling it semesters then ridiculous but that's what they did and and he said so right can we just 
go around the class one at a time. Just tell us what you've been up to on your leave, right? So the first guy says, oh, um, me and the missus went to the beach. The next person is, oh, watch, watch videos. The next person is, oh, oh, we have barbecues. Maybe the next person is, oh, we had a, a week in, you know, Spain or some, somewhere. And when it got to me, I just, I can't remember what he said, but I wasn't going to say that I, I backpacked through every country in the Americas that I'd not yet backpacked through. Uh, which can get which some of the flights I got was so small that when the um, when the stewardess I think it was or the person on the airport desk heard me say I was a pilot just because I just passed my test, they said, "Oh, would you like to sit up front with with the pilot?" So I sat up front with the you know the with the ra radio headphones on and everything, flying into the Amazon jungle. It was just amazing. I didn't mention that I backpacked all these countries. I didn't mention that I'd spent the day with Che Guevara's former commander in um, uh, on Cuba, right? Uh, I didn't mention that I just got my pilot's license and then they lent me a plane so I could fly up the coast uh, to a place called Sebastian and do skydiving for three weeks to get the skydiving license. Um, there was a whole, whole load of, there was a whole load. In, in basic, my three months leave, I just packed it with just bucket list, bucket list, bucket list, bucket list, dream, go, go, go. Um, but yeah, that was it. And that that was the, the summer. For some reason, I thought I'd finally learned to fly. Like I said, I don't know what actually triggered it. Um, I picked the cheapest flight school I could find. It was an English magazine, but this one was was in the States, which which stuck out from all the others. And when I phoned the guy, it was it was an English chap that promoted this flight school um, over there in Florida so that when he went over every year, he just got free um, free use of the sessions over there. Um, so I called him up. He said, yeah, I'll put in touch with Ernie. Ernie runs the school. And that's it. Next thing you're booking a ticket to, I think it was Orlando I flew into or, or Miami. Um, and uh, yeah, I spent the day drinking with homeless Vietnam veterans or former Vietnam veterans on Miami South Beach before this guy picked me up, took me to the flight school. On the way, I said, are, are there many alligators in Florida? You know, I've, I've been quite naive, Chris, most of my life, and I still I still am incredibly naive now. And he went, alligators? He just literally pulled the car into this lay-by. It was, a, it was a, a, a roadside diner or something. And there was this, this river, I was going to say creek, but it's probably a bit, bit bigger than a creek, packed with alligators just swimming up and down. <laughs> it was a, a like it was a Hell's Angels type motorbike gang drinking, but they were all um, they were all uh, ex Marines, and they're all going yeah. And it was like they were cheersing their victory in Vietnam. <laughs> I didn't didn't like to tell them that you guys didn't win. <laughs> um, just an incredible experience. Uh, I again. I couldn't believe that after flying for just 11 hours, they give you an aeroplane and you can fly solo. That was just, again, 
it's just all part of the experience, Chris, you know, just all yeah. part of the, oh my God, how lucky am I, you yeah. know, I'm just living my life. And, and yeah, that was it. Um, I think I, I did the three week course and then I think I paid for another, uh, seven hours of lessons because the guy hadn't explained to me the aerodynamics behind landing right the, the instructor i had was absolutely awful the worst in the end it was almost at punching stations wow. and i just turned around him in the cockpit one day and just laid into him verbally and said you are fucking useless i want i'll demand some more hours so they he get they gave me i think another seven hours for free um and what i'm saying there is i didn't know because no one had ever explained it that when you're coming in to land in an aircraft airplane you're landing on a cushion of air and that cushion is created between the wings and 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 the ground what you're not doing is a sort of dukes of hazard thing where you're going and, and just dive diving into the airfield which is what i just assumed did i thought you just pointed the, the airplane down and you, and you came in and it, it might sound silly to folks but he's there trying to teach me in his mind without explaining what it is he's actually thinking so i was slamming that cessna down um and it was only because when I went back to the flat that I rented, the apartment I rented with this Austrian guy, who funny enough had just failed his test, um, he looked at me and said, did he teach you how to land? I was like, no. He said, yeah, me neither. This is how you do it, right? And as soon as I realised that you're not pushing down, you're, 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 you're feathering back, if that's the right expression, um, to sort of... Like a, it's like a swan, isn't it? Coming into land, it puts its wings out and it's stopping the air and that, and then it gently comes, comes in on that cushion that's created. After that, I was, I was fit for the red arrows, Chris. I was, <laughs> yeah. I just could put that plane down on, on its two wheels without, without putting the nose wheel down, wheelie down the runway and then do a, what they call a go around. So just take off straight again without touching the nose wheel down. And, and uh, when I pass my test, yeah, it's just a lovely accomplishment. You know, I, I don't know how much I'm ever going to fly again. I, I would do it today if I was a millionaire. But to fly in the UK, if you get the weather window and pay £150 for 40 minutes, maybe that I'll, I'll earn that sort of money one day in my life, but I certainly don't earn it now. Yeah, that's fair. And I guess it's about the type of flying you do as well. It's, flying is, it's about freedom, but it's also about, for me, I, I like going fast. I like the rush of seeing the ground whizzing past uh, outside the cockpit and ultra low level is, is when you get a real sense of speed. And I like obviously any type of flying fixed wings. Great but in a helicopter, I would, I'd say in a gazelle, which is a big bubble canopy, uh, it's, it's like being a little magic carpet, nipping around, you know, mega low level, hedge hopping, sniffing over trees. And 
you know, you don't even have to be doing much more than 100 knots, but because you're close to the ground, that, that sense of speed is really there. Uh, probably about as much fun as it, as it can be flying. Awesome. So you're right, you don't often get the opportunity to do that in the UK as a, as a military pilot, let alone as a civilian, because obviously you know, you're not necessarily allowed to be that low level. But I'm sure out in the States or, or abroad, where the weather's good, the flying is cheap, um, and they're a little bit more chilled out with their rules and regs. Yeah, that's pretty Yeah, it, it, it was that thing, because I was doing it, I know people get upset when you use the term bucket list, but because I was, I was literally doing it for the experience, um, I didn't mind flying in the States under the FAA as opposed to the CAA, the Civil Aviation Authority. And like I said, just really wanted the experience. Um, had I learned to fly in the UK, we would have been talking probably 10 to 20 times the money that I spent. We would have been talking phone calls all the time. Sorry, Chris, can't fly today or you know your flights changed to this afternoon oh sorry we're gonna to have to cancel just just because of the weather um the rules are much more stringent if that's the right word in the uk much much stricter and that's obviously a good thing the airspace is a lot less so there's chance of you're going to meet other traffic so it has to be a lot safer um the british standard it's a bit like the scuba diving the british standard is just higher and, and slightly more complex the learning than 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 the, than the american equivalent um and and i always had the option to convert my license when i got back um but like i say this it's just too much money fair enough, fair enough yeah well hopefully we'll get you up in one of our helicopter experiences sometime soon that would be yeah uh, oh i'd love to uh, yeah that's uh that's a, a year or two down the line but that's that's the aspiration oh um, that would be brilliant yeah helicopter profiles um but open up to any civilian customers you want to see what yeah i'll be i'll mate i'll have gopros <laughs> about 30 gro i'll have like a bandolier of gopros strapped to me that would be uh that would be excellent yeah well that'd be cool um, so, so racing driving um you don't do things by halves, do you? <laughs> True enough. I, mean, I think by the time I'd done three Afghan tours on the Apache, uh, it was amazing. It was such a, an awesome thing to be able to do. But I was at the point where um, I was going to kind of promote out of, out of a cockpit role and into a, into a staff job. Um, so I, I approached the Air Force and said, Look, can I just come across the Air Force and carry on flying? And uh, and actually, it was really easy, and they were very good about it, and just let me come come straight across, do a bit of training, and carried on, um, and spent the best part of eight years doing uh, you know doing flying at a, at a relatively chilled level, so that I had capacity to then go and do other things. So uh, yeah, about the right about that sort of time, I'd met my now wife. Um, so I. Uh, it was the first time I pretty much had a life because it was amazing being at an Afghan or being preparing for going out to do an Afghan uh, Afghan tour. But it was a full time life. It just it literally was there was no capacity to do anything else. Whereas uh, what 
chopping across the Air Force enabled me to do, as well as have capacity to have some, you know, get married and, and have a bit of a life. Uh, it gave me the time to go and do motorsport, which I've always been passionate about. And, uh, you know, I was never looking to do it as a professional, uh, you know, just just being a, a pro racing driver and that's it at the expense of all else. But just for the sheer enjoyment of it, probably similar minded to you in as much as I like ticking boxes, but uh, that was a that was a box I really wanted to tick properly. So rallying and racing both massively appealed to me. So luckily enough, what going across the Air Force gave me the opportunity to do is to have the capacity to go and um, compete in both. So bought myself a rally car, got my rally license, started competing, likewise with racing. And then eventually I did enough to uh, become an instructor. So I then did my instructor test uh, and then worked as a, as a rally instructor um, for a few years at a rally school, just in my spare time, fitted in around um, the last few years of Air Force service. And then, but I, I did exactly the same ditto with uh, with racing as well. So, you know, bought a racing car, got my license, did a few seasons of racing, then went down to uh, to Thruxton um, race circuit, relatively close to, to where I'm in Reading, and uh, and then became an instructor. I still work there part time, uh, and it's it's just great fun. So, but I'm, I mean, I'm not teaching professional racing drivers how to be quicker. I'm you know just giving an experience of uh, people who've not been on circuit or not done much time driving around a race circuit before. I can give them the benefit of how they need to position the car, racing lines, and you know, optimizing the performance of the car. Um, so that's really cool. But all that enabled me to uh, prepare for what I want to do with my own business. Um, so the, the main reason, uh, if you don't mind me just uh, slightly changing subject here, it all leads into one of the key reasons I, I left the, uh, the Army Air Corps, went across the Air Force to, to give me that capacity uh, was to prepare slow time into creating my own business, which was a, yeah the ultimate personal tick box of all the cool things I really wanted to do. Uh, that I've been very lucky to do in my military career, mainly mainly in the army, uh, but also then later on in the air force. Plus, throwing all my favourite civvy hobbies and just put it in, into a series of a little you know packages uh, that like-minded um, you know guys wanted to come and be part of the team and instruct on, and like-minded customers want to come and do because it's going to be a great fun day out for them, or uh, you know just really enjoyable. Or they wanted. You know, they want to have those skills developed in themselves for a professional capacity. Um, so I pretty much, with a, with a blank sheet of paper, I said, right, what would be the coolest things that I could pull together out of what I've done in the military? And I was like, right, uh, and, and other things. If I, could, if I could do whatever I wanted, it would be, there'd be some rally driving in there, there'd be some racing, there'd be attack helicopter profiles. We'd throw in, you know, there'd be some skydiving. We'd put in a bit of, stuff you see on Mission Impossible, Top Gear, uh, you know, James Bond. Uh, some some uh, weapons? Some weapons, yeah. Um, some A little bit of close protection type stuff, a little bit of, you know, sort of counter-terrorism, um, policing or SF type stuff. And just pull these things together. Uh, and then, you know, you, you find, as you as you mentioned already, if you, if you, if you want to do something and you've got the passion for it and you believe in it strongly enough, just people just start appearing. So all all my muckers from various elements of the of the armed forces and from 
um, racing instructing and rally instructing. Yeah, all just kind of, it all slots into uh, into place, and they guys with all the specialist expertise that I don't necessarily have to a great level myself, but these guys do. Because uh, I'm a bit of a dabbler, I want to be doing all these different things. I, I'm such a box ticker. But having somebody who's a specialist as a rally instructor, uh, who is a pro rally driver, who's been, you know, the, like, so one of our guys who, who instructs um, for, for my company, for V-Force, is uh, the youngest ever junior British rally champ. And he's done lots of professional rally. Extremely talented guy, excellent instructor. So he's the guy that will be teaching people how to do rally driving. No, it's, yeah, yes, I can I can teach to a basic level, but yeah, it's, I want people who are really, really passionate about and capable and really good at what they do in their niche. But then equally, if you if you have that exact same philosophy from everyone in the team who's got their own specialist niche, then you know you've got a really good vibe you've got professional credibility and we can pull together just a buffet of all the coolest things you could just imagine all wrapped up in there the same sort of um package so that's that's where i'm at um i did the motorsport stuff because i love it but also to just go and do you know when i'm doing evasive driving packages i'm basing it around rally driving but there's more to it there's explosions there's guys shooting sim munitions at you uh, there's a car chase scenario of you know, a bunch of bad guys chasing after you. Yeah, it's about as good as it gets. It's like driving through a movie set. And I just thought, if I can do this with credibility, with good quality, then uh, I'm just going to have a blast doing things that I enjoy doing and with other people who love it just as much as I do. So Let's um, let's give your company name V-Force, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. V-Force, uh, Vehicles, v uh, Vosper, surname Vosper, um, V-Force obviously was a big part of Air Force, um, you know, life in the, in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and, but actually, I, maybe you didn't know this, I, I didn't know it initially, but it was also um, a, a UK Special Forces unit in the Second World War. Um, but I just thought, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to call it the Chris Vosper Rally School or the Chris Vosper Tackle Driving School. I just that just didn't sit well with me um, uh, so it needed to be something that was vaguely hinting at military uh, but it's an awesome not, name mate not, and it, your 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 emblem uh, or logo is is very yeah it's you know something exciting is going to go on you know there's there's going to be lots of people wearing black <laughs> yeah well that's that's the plan and I think yeah if you can be four up in a a black um you know, attack helicopter, civilian, but notionally attack helicopter, like an Augusta 109 or a twin squirrel. You put your mate in a in a black Subaru uh, rally car replica, send him firing around a massive uh, gravel rally stage, and then you get to go and chase him down in the helicopter and then do a vehicle interdiction. So similar to, you know, all the cool stuff, the very best bits that we were doing on Apache. Uh, but... You know, with with a lot less of the planning, the restrictions. Of course, when you're as a military guy, especially in the flying world, you you've got to be as efficient with that airframe as you can. There are budget restrictions. You're the taxpayer doesn't want to see you just going on jollies. You've got to <laughs> clearly you've got to prepare as much as you can uh, for being good on operations. And that the penalty for that is you've got to be super careful with your planning and use every minute of flying time. Uh, to be 
good at skills. However, doing it for fun, as we're doing in, in V-Force, none of that comes into uh, to play. It's about provided you're able to, you know, uh, justify the cost, which clearly there's no there's no cheap helicopter flying out there. Uh, but we can just purely put the emphasis on doing the very fun uh, and only the fun bits uh, without having to worry about stacks of planning or being efficient with um, with our with our budget for did you say skills. did you say the helicopter bits yet to come it's yet to come I mean, because that's a significant amount of development beyond uh, what we're where we're at, at the moment is delivering driving experiences uh, which have a variety of everything's in two dimensions but we've got a different bunch of disciplines different bunch of uh, types of car and you can apply different tactical scenarios to, to everything we do and and that's shaping up very nicely uh, to then to then step up to throwing in helicopters and that um, is the amount of background admin required to get authorization from uh, from the civil aviation authority uh, get all the the profiles you know safe but but fun requires a significant amount of trial research and development work because what i don't want to do is have something that's like completely sterile and benign where you're doing two thousand feet it's like okay well it's, it's cool but it's not exciting enough equally we don't want to be so reckless that we're going against you know uh caa regs or we're endangering the lives of uh of the customers or, or pilots so it's, it's making it uh, within the bounds of safety and regs as cool and as fun and as enjoyable and memorable as possible. And, uh, you know, I think to do that justice takes a bit of time and effort. Plus the other thing is we're not, it's not just about, you know, it's not just about helicopter flying and that's all we're offering. We want to be ha having a, a buffet of various different cool things that people can choose from. And it's going to be preference and, you know, frankly, budget dependent because you can you can drive a Subaru rally car for a few hundred quid, no problem. When you involve um, helicopters doing really specialist stuff, you got to add a zero, and you know that is a tiny market. So we're only we're, I'm not pitching that as our main thing. Uh, that is a bolt-on that's going to appeal to a couple of percent of people who've got a lot of disposable income and want to do something really really cool. Uh, where time is of the essence, money is not. Um, but for the vast majority, I guess that's probably a little bit out of uh, financial reach for the time being. What would be really nice and the longer term view is to become nice and successful um, and profitable that we got the ability to do some charity stuff where we could offer up hopefully the odd little place here and there uh, for free as, as a reward for, for people or raffle off for, um, for, the, for charities. Um, and obviously, you know, there are many good people doing many good things and it'd be nice to support. So, uh, yeah, longer term aims, be successful, have a great time in the meantime, but uh, be in a position where we can do a bit to help others as well. Yeah, so, well, yeah. perhaps uh, we can chat about that after the podcast because um, I've always got a few charity irons in the fire and uh, during this veterans crisis that we're cr mental health crisis that we're currently in it's uh, yeah. not just veterans it's obviously uh, it's, uh, a lot of people aren't very well at the moment but obviously but veterans seem particularly to be taking their own lives so i know yeah. tragic 
and uh, yeah, it's 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 such a shame. It's just such a waste. Uh, so I I obviously, as you can appreciate, I'm fortunate we're linked in with some really great guys who uh, who are part of the team uh, instructing or, or staffing at V Force, and vast majority are either uh, ex military or you know, former military or, or still serving. Um, so very much you know, want to be able to whatever we can do support veterans. Yes, all for it. Yeah. Um, I so, look forward to chatting to you about that because it's. I'm, I feel quite excited now. I've got a few ideas. Fantastic. Um, I, I was going to say, Chris, it sounds like one hell of a stag do, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but no, without no the alcohol and you know. Yeah. You can yeah. drink in the evening, but that's right. Yeah, fuck up um, sober. I mean, that's the idea of it. If uh, yeah, it would, it's a pretty decadent stag do, but pretty a memorable one. So, so um, I'd hope that uh, yeah, for like I checked out your pr prices, with a very reasonable, uh, unless I misunderstood something. I mean, around the two hundred and fifty pounds mark. Yeah. I think it, it is reasonable, and that's obviously there's a little bit, just a little bit more than that, but to allow for um, a bit of a forces discount or an emergency service discount, uh, or wherever we can, you know, just offer up a little bit of a discount. But you kind of got to make the the balance between covering the cost, which are fairly significant, to lay on um, good quality training evolutions with plenty of time in the driving seat with a really good instructor. As we've discussed before, if you've got an idiot of an instructor, just totally you know, sours the, the taste in it. But if you've got somebody who's really passionate and skilled and knowledgeable about what they're doing, sat alongside you, mm. it makes it makes a big difference. So, yeah, um, to start with, probably right. You know, um, so the two fifty three hundred quid mark for for a really compelling, really awesome, and pretty much I'd say I'd say unique experience out of it. It's, to me, that seems very fair. It is a fair bit of money for um, somebody on a relatively average wage, yes, but what's the trade-off? You're doing something amazing. So, um, and yeah, I guess in time, well, we'll probably make it a bit modular uh, and make the additional bits modular so you could pay for extra cool things um, on top of the, the stock standard. But for most people, just doing, you know, a full-on four hours of really intense uh, of intense driving that they won't have done before um is enough and really cool and that's that's as far as we you know we want to be fair about it don't need to be don't need to be greedy but at the same time you know it is a business so we when we can uh, get profitable to a really good degree that opens up a, a bunch of opportunities to do other other great things yes well it certainly sounds like an amazing experience and like i said that that doesn't sound expensive to me at all um i'm sure there's far more expensive uh, days out that you can that you can uh, have yeah. to pay have to pay for if you like that sort of thing yeah absolutely can, can we talk about the nitty-gritty of driving then because yeah sure um i was going to use an example then but it will get me in in trouble with the police <laughs> <laughs> so just imagine it was your friend or well, let's just say I, I, <laughs> I, I had to flick something on in the car the other day and, and the guy that was with me went I'd rather you didn't do that 
and I said, no disrespect, but I grew up in the Southwest, like in the sticks. If you can't flick a switch while you're driving, you the way we look at it is you probably shouldn't be in charge of a motor car. <laughs> right. That's fair enough. Um, but it is, I mean, I came from that era where your dad drove you back from the pub. He was pissed, which is just what people did back then. Um, he'd have a pint of beer between his knees, rolling roll a cigarette, well, changing the changing radio one to radio two with his or radio two to radio one for the top of the pops with his elbow waving at his mate the policeman as he drove the other way right <laughs> okay i'm i'm slightly exaggerating but um that was that was the 70s for you <laughs> multitasking yeah so, so i like to think of myself as a as a, a competent driver it's not something i'd ever say to anyone for the simple reason whenever anyone says i'm a really good driver they're always the worst. <laughs> but, I mean, we threw cars around as kids, you know, as teenagers, just, I'm, I'm almost surprised that any of us are still here, right? But then again, that, that's also testament to the fact that we, we kept them on the road mo most of the time. Um, but when I see that thing on Top Gun, uh, Top Gun, Top Gear, yeah. where they put the celebrity in, was it the reasonably priced car? And and then they say to me, yeah, where do you think you come on the board? I I honestly think I'd just be like at the top. <laughs> Although I'm 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 more than willing um to admit there's a lot more to, to performance driving than what I what I know. Of course, of course there is, right? Um but do you ever, where would you come on that leaderboard then, Chris, if you, if you were to drive that, that reasonably priced car? I'd like to think somewhere near the top. Yeah, I think I'd be pretty, pretty happy with that. I and mean, I think I've probably got the advantage of having to spend a bit of time on, on, you know, on circuits, on racetracks. And when you're used to an environment, uh, you kinda, you're more comfortable, you're, you're more competent at that skill. And, yeah, you know, it depends who else I'd, I'd be up against. But compared to you know, celebrities who haven't really done any significant racing or or done lots of time on the track, then it's almost cheating, isn't it? So yeah, I'd like to think I'd probably be uh, at the top of the board or towards the top. But if you compare, if I was to compare myself against like the ex Formula One drivers or you know the guys who even you know, Lewis Hamilton did that, didn't he? So I think yeah, I'd still be uh, you know, there'd be a bit to, to, to push to catch up with those guys. Um, but I'd rather be comparing myself to those dudes um, because, you know, it's like you, that's where you want to aim. You're talking about the very, the very best guys and what they do. And if you can just, if you could get within a second a, a lap or, you know, comfortably within a second a lap of Lewis Hamilton's time, that's the target. That's where you want to be. So, yeah, I, I'd like to see... Um, that's a fair comparison. And if you're running with a top pack, then even if you're the last, you're, you're still making progress. So, um, but, yeah, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, who's just sort of work? Do you, I mean, do you get many really bad drivers come on? On Are there some people that just haven't got it? 
It's, it's an interesting thing. So I, I like the psychology of, of skills, skill acquisition, of learning fine motor skills, of learning how to do something for the, for the first time and, and then develop it to a good standard. And I think um, some people have a bit more uh, of a natural aptitude to acquire certain skills than others, but in the same way that some people have probably got more physiological uh, tendencies or advantages. Uh, than others, but I think your attitude to how you, you know, how much you apply yourself, how much, what your mindset and your motivation is, has a big bearing on how much you're willing to develop. I think people who are who are struggling to or don't perform particularly well uh, probably don't necessarily think of themselves as being capable of performing particularly well. For one, aren't particularly interested and uh, or, or you know, don't, are not motivated to to up their up their game much. They just want to. They've got an experience day to come and have some fun, and it's been bought for them as a present. So, a few laps going around a race circuit is a is a real tick in the box novelty, but it's not necessarily part of a, a program of development that they want to go through. So, I think that's probably the overriding factor. But um, yeah, some people just seem to struggle um a bit more than others so some people just you know they'll just gel with with the car and be able to comfortably um you know understand the the little bits of instruction and that's i suppose that's the other bit is people having the capacity or willingness to learn and absorb instruction because you know some people are just you know tense they focus on what they're doing they what you know when you're maxed you know or starting to max out one of the first things to go is your sense of hearing isn't it yeah, um, oh, had, yeah so you'd be offering instructions like for example break hard because we're going fast into a slow corner and if you don't we're going to crash and there isn't a, another pedal on my side so you're the one doing the braking too maxed out to listen so it's, you know we're almost you know uh, on occasion quite close to physical intervention you need to press that brake pedal or we're both going to wind up in that armco hurt so but that doesn't happen that often most people you, if you're a good instructor you're going to try and put people at ease and uh, at least you're going to build up to um, a position where you know, they nibble at the edge of their comfort zone but you're always doing it safely so i'd rather have somebody who's really struggling go a bit slower and not necessarily it's not necessarily the pace of the car it's the pace of events it's have they got the ability to think ahead listen to instruction and make you know absorb the critical instructions of how much you need to uh, to break and when but also so that's on a race circuit rallying you're going to need to use some power when it's counterintuitive to hold the slide and prevent you from um, spinning out or sliding off into danger and that is probably the trickier bit because it's when instincts kick in that you you need to. If somebody's got a mindset, and this military guy is really good at this, uh, is you can override your instinct to an extent because you're used to instructions and and you know that discipline of. I said jump now, you go, you jump out of that aircraft or whatever it is. Um, whereas not everybody's had that life experience or, or that ability to override their natural instincts for survival which even if logic is saying i need to listen to what this instructor is telling me because it makes sense uh 
actually, um, I'm just going to lift off the accelerator. You'll think I'm going too fast, mid-corner. Whereas actually, the car would have gone around just fine, but that very act of aggressively lifting off the accelerator because you've just had a bit of a panic has actually caused the car to spin. Yeah. Little things like that. So, yeah, do people... Uh, was there is a huge range of abilities of, of start states when people get in the car but it's always nice to be able to give a really noticeable amount of progression so even if somebody started as a you know a relatively low standard of driving if you can you know help develop um a certain aspect or you know see significant improvement even if even if that end state isn't again isn't particularly high well, that's great because they come away feeling a sense of accomplishment. You come away as an instructor feeling a sense of accomplishment. And you know that if ever they want to continue, well, you've just you just moved the, the bottom rung you know, a, a notch up. So next time they come back to do a bit more, you know you can develop them a little bit further. And everybody's going to develop at a different rate. And uh, I think with enough time, effort, patience, and certainly, you know, unless you're doing it professionally, money how much money you're willing to throw at something to get good at it then you can you can master any skill uh but i guess you know motivation is a big factor isn't it um so yeah yes yeah so i, I just imagine myself burning around that track i mean when they leave the line on the on top gear i'm talking about now i'm just thinking first gear Red line, second gear, red line, third, fourth, down into third for the corner, foot to the floor. Is it understeer or oversteer? I don't know the 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 when it's pushing, pushing on. Yeah, yeah when, pushing when, on. Yeah, yeah that's, that's understeer. Just yeah. just got it. You just know if any more you're gonna slide off at any less and you you're you're gonna lose 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 speed. But you you reminded me of something then when you said about the selective hearing when you're under pressure it's the first thing to go when i was on my um my para course or my second para course i should say uh we'd done a jump on the herc and the, the wind was about the maximum it, it can be for, for for safety and i was coming into land and I, I was coming in the wind was carrying me quite fast so i pulled down on the on the lift webs to slow myself down and all I could hear from the ground from the, one of the instructors was, number seven, let up. Number seven, let up. And I'm coming down thinking, number seven, you freaking idiot. <laughs> number seven, let up. Glad I'm not number seven. Anyway, when I smacked into the ground harder, that I think the human body is possible. I think I've, I've just pushed it to the edge of the envelope of not killing myself, right? Knocked myself unconscious. First thing I thought when I woke up was, oh yeah, I'm number seven, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> the instructor's brother, why didn't you let up? What? Uh, I, I, I just, I just, black, you know, I was so focused on the task in hand, I couldn't really do the two things at the same time so yeah yes my gosh well it, that happens and that happens a lot and i think you as a as an instructor you gotta recognize that if somebody's pushing themselves out of their psychological comfort zone it's actually 
what is something that's commonplace and you know an environment you're used to isn't for them and you've got to be conscious of that and you've got to, you've got to take that into account and uh a good instructor will will work around that yeah yeah you know, fly, hand in flying all the time flying military flying training the uh by the time you've, you've learned a skill you'll then get tested especially in the operational phase you know everything that you you need to know to a basic level you then get tested so you're pushed to capacity all the time so you just get thrown um an engine failure for example in the middle of a really busy bit of navigation and you got to crack on and it's obviously it's testing your capacity pushing you max capacity all the time so you know just when you didn't want you know, an engine fire simulated uh when you're trying to make a busy radio call to negotiate across a bit of uh a bit of airspace right well next thing you know you're looking for a field you can land in deal with the fire press the right buttons make another radio call um swerve some wires wherever it is so yeah i think the military flying train system is really good at, at highlighting you know the the limit of the human brain so um fascinating when, stuff when when you were in the army then and then subsequently the rf did you wear your green lid no i wore my wore my green lid obviously as a as a royal marine reservist for you know for five or six years five and a bit years i was i was in then um in the in the army i wore uh whatever you you know the dark blue one at uh, sandhurst then i wore a maroon lid while i was with uh the paras on attachment then i wore the light light blue army air corps berry and obviously i had my had my dagger uh on, on my on my shoulder uh on my arm uh for the rest of my army career and then when i went across the air force wore the air force berry and likewise had the uh the dagger on unless unless you're attached to a commander unit then in which case you can wear your your green berry with with an rf badge but i just didn't think that looked right so uh no i didn't wear my green lid after that as much as i would have liked to have done um no but always wore my my commando dagger with pride so uh yeah but i've Good probably start. got six different colored berries <laughs> yeah yeah it's got quite a collection yeah <laughs> one for every occasion oh yeah that's it Chris, this has been absolutely one of the most thoroughly enjoyable and fascinating chats I've had in my 50, uh, 51 years on this planet. So thank you ever so much. Thank you. That's been, been an absolute delight. It's been brilliant. Oh, I wish you all, all the best at V-Force and hope to come up and, and, and see you there at the soonest uh, possibility. Yeah, that'd be great. So stay on the line, but thank, thank you very much again. To our friends at home, massive thank you again for watching another episode or listening to another episode of the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Big love to you and your families. Take care and we'll see you next time. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thrall. Thank you.